is always uh, good to have a, a personal visit, and they were here, uh, they've been here a couple times over the last few years, um, but it is uh, much easier and cheaper to do it this way as well. So we're thankful um, that she was willing to take the time, and like she mentioned, she didn't even cover everything when she went. The goal, I think, initially, if I remember right, was just a home for women with HIV, AIDS, and then caring for their orphan children, and it's grown, you can see, into so many different things. And bio, she didn't even mention much of what bio does, some administrative things, very involved in just pastoral care of people. And so, um, so anyway, lots, uh, lots going on there. Um, and we're very thankful for your generous giving uh, that allows us to be partners with them uh, for a long time now. So, um, but a question would be, um, can we get that up there at some point, Ellie? Uh, yep, from the beginning. Awesome. Um, if we ask this question, um, so, so you think about, uh, here, we're going to ask a really important question today overall, and the question is why, okay? We're looking at the gospel according to John, and John writes that this was written, he wrote this book. Why did John write this book? John, a disciple of Jesus, wrote a book, and he said, at the end of the book, he said this, this is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Okay, he wants people to know the truth about Jesus, that they might believe the truth about Jesus and have eternal life in Jesus. Okay? And so, same really answer if we wonder, well, why, why is it if I drew a line from Iowa Falls, Iowa to Joss, Nigeria? It's about 6,358 miles away. Why do we support the work of the Mashiach Foundation in Joss, Nigeria? Well, it's because we want people to know and believe Jesus. And we want to be obedient to Jesus who calls us to love our neighbors. And that's not just the people around us. Nearly 2,000 years ago, like I mentioned, the Holy Spirit inspired the disciple John to write every word of the book of John that people might know Jesus and make him known. And why then? Here, John wrote this book, they guess, probably in the city of Ephesus. And that is, I wrote that down too, 5,741 miles from Iowa Falls. So why are we now, 2,000 years later, studying and looking in depth at a book written by a man 5,741 miles away 2,000 years ago? And it's because this book was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Every word of it comes from God through the pen of John to us in order that we too might know Jesus and make him known. And that's why we're doing it. And as you read through the Gospels, maybe you're somebody who's read through the Bible a lot, maybe not much at all. But as you read through the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will find that Jesus does many, many miracles. Supernatural acts that's like, well, how, how that doesn't just happen naturally. And we see miracle after miracle. And we're going to look at one of those miracles today. We're going to look at the miracle of Jesus attending a wedding. And at that wedding, turning water into wine. It's the first of his miracles. And we're going to ask a bigger question. And that question is this. Why miracles? Because John gives us an answer for that here. In the first of the miracles that Jesus performs, he gives us some of the purpose as to why Jesus performs miracles. And so, if you are able to, would you stand as we read John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. We stand because this is the Word of God. When God speaks, we want to be people who listen and people who obey. 
Here's what God's word says in John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you, you've kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, And they stayed there for a few days. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that nearly 2,000 years ago, you inspired, working through your Holy Spirit, working through the mind and personality and pen of John, to write down for us an account of who Jesus is and what Jesus did with the goal that we, that his original readers and that we too, might hear of who Jesus is and what Jesus did and might respond by believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. Would you cause that to happen? In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated. In your bulletin, there is a sermon outline which might be helpful for you, uh, and that also contains your life group guide. Again, many of you involved in a life group, that's an opportunity that we have to get together with others and spend a lot more time working on application of the word and loving and encouraging each other than we have on a Sunday morning. And so thanks for your involvement in those and thanks to those who are leading those life groups. If you want more information about one, let me know. But here we have the first five verses really just kind of set up this first miracle, giving us the background. We're going to spend, just so you know, most of our time looking at verse 11 today. But we do want to see that this is significant, the miracle that Jesus performs. And so first we see how it gets set up. He gives us the time and place, which John does a lot early on in the gospel. We had just found that earlier, at the end of chapter 1, Jesus was in Bethsaida, which is a a fisherman's town, okay, on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. It was a city of Andrew and Peter and Philip. And Jesus had called them there to follow him. And now they've traveled, it's three days later on the third day, they've traveled to Cana in Galilee. Cana is west. It's not on the Sea of Galilee. It's a country town west of Bethsaida and north of Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. And so they are invited to a wedding. And and it tells us that not just Jesus and these disciples, but also Jesus' mother was there. And we're going to hear a conversation between Jesus and his mother. It begins like this in verse 3. 
when the wine ran out. Now, a wedding there would have been a lot longer than a wedding celebration here in our nation and in our time. Uh, Could have lasted even up to a week as people are gathered to celebrate this wedding. And the the drink that they would have was typically wine. Uh, And so the wine had run out. And we hear the mother of Jesus say to her son, they have no wine. Okay, just letting them know they have no wine. Why might she say this? Um, well, first of all, we need to know that it would have been very embarrassing if you were the groom's family. The groom's family is the one that was to provide the wine for the wedding. It would be very embarrassing if you have people there to celebrate your wedding and you run out. Right? At our wedding, Kirsten and I, we got married in 2001, and we had uh, we had people, um, some of my friends, who had been invited to the wedding and had driven to the wedding. There, we ran out of room in the area in the church where we had the reception, and so they just took off. I mean, there was space, and they could have found it, but they were like they were my 20-year-old friends, and they're like, I'm not sitting by that guy. I don't know him, you know. So they left, but we ran out, and that's a little embarrassing. But how embarrassing would it be to be that short? on a staple of a wedding celebration like wine here in the first century. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, from a number of things that you can read in Scripture and the way that it talks about Mary and the way that it talks about Jesus, most people expect, though it doesn't say it explicitly in in Scripture, most people expect that by this time, Mary is likely a widow. At this time, because of the way they refer to Mary and the way they refer to Jesus and to Joseph, there's an expectation that at this time already, Mary is a widow. And so Jesus, being her eldest child, probably would have assumed much responsibility in his young adult life to care for his mother. And so it would be relatively natural for her, when they have run out of wine, anytime there's a problem, she probably turns to Jesus. And so she's turning to Jesus again and saying to him, they have no wine. Now, we don't know what it was that Mary would have expected Jesus to do, but she just tells him they have no wine. And Jesus responds to her, as you read it, you might have thought, well, that sounds a little disrespectful. Like, if that was my child, I would say, is that the way that you talk to your mom? Right? Now, Jesus isn't a child anymore at this point. He is an adult. And Jesus, obviously, is not any normal, uh, you know, like, he is fully God and fully man. He is God in human flesh. And this is one of the times, we're going to see it again in John as well, but this is one of the times in the Gospel of John where Jesus, in some ways, separates himself from his mother or distances himself by the language that he uses. He doesn't, this is not disrespectful the way that he's talking to her, but it's also not warm and compassionate as a mother and son might have otherwise talked to one another. Jesus says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus is making it clear at this point, and he will from here on, that it's not the people around him, even his own mother, that set the agenda for him. But he has come as the one who will set the agenda. He knows what purpose he has come for. And it's not just to work miracles. Jesus has come. When he uses this phrase, my hour has not yet come, that hour that he's referring to, and we'll see it again more and more, is he's referring to his coming death and resurrection. 
And right now, his earthly ministry has just started. And there's a number of things that he has yet to do before he gets to the point where he's going to die and be raised from the dead. And so he just tells her, in a respectful way, woman, what has this to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And so you might expect, well, then game over. He's not going to do anything right now. But that's not the case. We see Jesus' mother not respond to Jesus, but to look to the servants. So she respects his willingness to set the agenda, and he, he knows that, that, that she doesn't get to tell him what to do, right? But his mother looks to the servants and says to them, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. And so now we're going to see the first miracle. We look at verses 6 to 10 to see that. Verse 6 says this, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So if you do the math on that, that's a lot of water. Each of them holding 20 to 30 gallons. So 60, or sorry, um, 20 times 6 is 120. I should have done the math ahead of time. Uh, 30, 30 times 6 is 180, okay, right? So that's a whole lot of jar. These, these, I mean, it would have been heavy, right? And the servants are told, well, they're not told anything yet. Let's look to verse 7. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim, okay? So these things are full. And he said to them, now, Draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. What did the servants put in the jars? Water, right? And so he's saying, take some out and bring it to the master of the feast. What do you expect that they expect they're going to be drawing out of water, right? You ever had that where like you're uh, like you you've got uh, you thought you had one thing in your cup and you take a drink of it, and it's a different thing. Like you thought it was milk, and you take a drink, and it's orange juice. It tastes really weird at first. Like, whoa, that's not what I was expecting. Do you think they were expecting, as Jesus told them, draw this out? They, were expe- they, j- they just got done filling it with water. The same servants fill the thing with water to the brim. They dip it in, and what comes out? Wine. That's not natural, right? Water is water. But here, it's turned into wine. Jesus has done that. This is a miracle. This is supernatural. Verses 9 and 10, when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from. So the servants knew. It says, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. So, so, so this miracle, sometimes Jesus' miracles were very public and lots of people got to witness them. Here Jesus is at a wedding, a very public event, And he changes water into wine, and it's like hardly anybody even knows about it. Even the master of the feast who receives it from the servants isn't told. So the master of the feast calls the bridegroom, and he just, like, he gives the bridegroom all the credit. Okay? He doesn't say, oh, who worked this miracle? He didn't even know they had run out. Servants just bring it to him. And he goes up to the groom and says, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. And so the groom, who probably could have been very embarrassed, is now complimented instead. Right? So Jesus has just worked his first miracle. 
can I pause for a second and just mention, isn't this an interesting first miracle? Isn't it? I mean, you think of the other miracles that we're going to see Jesus do. There's hungry people, and Jesus feeds them. There's blind people, and Jesus gives them sight. There's lame people, and Jesus makes them walk. There's dead people, and Jesus raises them from the dead. But his first miracle, there's a groom who might be embarrassed because they ran out of wine at his wedding, and Jesus takes water and turns it into wine. That's interesting, isn't it? And some people would look at this, and, 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 and maybe they're right. They would say, well, there's symbolism in this miracle of, of the Jesus kind of being the new wine. Uh, he's, he's coming, and he's better than, than anything in the Old Testament, and he has him fill it to the brim because he's coming to be. Maybe, maybe that's the case. But I want to look at what John actually tells us. What does John say about the purpose of this miracle And I think from that we might even be able to say for the purpose of miracles generally. And so we see that in verse 11. So let's take some time to look at verse 11. Verse 11 starts out this way. It says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. Now, hold on a second. I've used the word miracle. I even titled the sermon, Why Miracles? Did you notice here that John doesn't use the word miracle? He hasn't used that word yet. In fact, he refers to this as a sign. This, the first of his signs. He's going to refer to more signs as we go through the rest of the Gospel of John. But this is the first one, and he calls it a sign and not a miracle. So from now on, even though I mistitled the sermon, I'm going to start using the word sign instead of miracle. Okay? We usually talk about miracles. Here he's talking about signs. Why does he use the word sign? Because there was a word for miracle. Why does he use the word sign? Well, think about it for a second. What do we use signs for? Signs are used to point us to something more significant. Like the sign is not the thing, but the sign points to the thing, right? And so here it's going to tell us in verse 11, this is a sign. So the point wasn't just so that this poor groom is not embarrassed. That was one of the results. But that's not the whole point of why it was that Jesus did this sign. Why did Jesus do the sign? Because in doing so, he manifested or revealed his glory. Up to this point, most people knew Jesus as Jesus, son of Nazareth, a carpenter from the little town. That's why Nathaniel was skeptical. But in this way, Jesus begins to reveal his glory or manifest his glory. That's one of the reasons, one of the purposes that Jesus did this miracle was that people would know of his glory. Secondly, he did it for this purpose, that some might believe in him. Remember, he didn't do this very publicly, but he did this and so that the disciples might believe in him. You see those two Reasons for this sign? Jesus does miracles, we see here then, for a couple of reasons. One, to reveal his glory. And two, so that people would believe in him. I use the word miracle again. Sign. Jesus did the sign, right? To reveal his glory and so that people might believe in him. So the principle is this. Oh, I should read verse 12. 
This is going to help us as we kind of go into next week. But after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days, just kind of taking us from one point to the other. But here's a big question. The big question that I would ask is this. Why miracles? Well, miracles are signs that point to something even more significant. Okay? As Jesus performed this miracle, turning water into wine, it's not all about the wine. The wine is a sign. Right? See that rhyming? That was kind of fun, huh? Uh, but the wine, is, the wine is a sign. It's not all about, well, now this groom is not uh, any longer going to be embarrassed, and now everybody has something to drink at the wedding. That's not the end purpose of this. That's a sign that's pointing to something more significant. Okay, I want you to imagine this with me, okay? This is a trip that I have not taken, but many of you in here have taken a long road trip with children. Taken a long road trip with children before, okay? So imagine a family has this desire and takes the time to make a trip to go see the Grand Canyon. I've not been there, uh, but I hear it's beautiful and it would be a great place to take kids, right? And so a family dreams up this vacation. We're going to go camp out. So they get a camper, and they pack the camper, and then they get in their minivan, and the whole family's in the minivan. You know how it works with a family in a minivan. There's lots of bickering back and forth, and you're only, like, out of the driveway, basically. And there's one kid that just cries a lot. And so you turn up the music uh, so that you can drown out all of the other noise, so your ears hurt. And then your stomach kind of hurts because you've been going down the road for a few hours now. And to keep the kids quiet and to keep yourself awake, you've just been eating like fast food and snack food. And you're just not even feeling all that good. And it takes like it's a long ways to get to the Grand Canyon. You're, you're changing dirty diapers on a dirty van floor because you're not sure where else you're supposed to change this thing. And nobody can sit in this smell anyway. Like, you know what these trips are like, okay? So imagine a trip. You're going to the Grand Canyon, but you know it's going to be all worth it because in the end, we're going to see the, the glory of God's creation in this beautiful thing that he's created called the Grand Canyon. And so, after two days of traveling, your weary family pulls up to the sign that says Grand Canyon National Park. And so you park your camper right there next to the sign. You take some pictures next to the sign. You spend a couple of nights next to the sign. And you pack back up and go home. What did you miss? The Grand Canyon. Right? Like, that's what you came to see. It was just past the sign. You just had to go past the sign. The sign was there to point you to the fact that you've arrived here at the Grand Canyon, but you need to go just a little further to see what it is that the sign points to. And so as Jesus performs miracles like these, we can't just stop at the miracle and say, well, this is it, and camp out there. Like, the goal of everything was that we would see Jesus perform this miracle. But the Jesus who performs miracles, they're actually signs that point us to something more significant. In this case, it tells us his glory, and he does it so that people might believe in him. He's not just trying to not not allow a groom not to be embarrassed. He's not just healing a blind person. He's not just healing a lame person. He's not just raising somebody from the dead. Because you know what happened to the people that he raised from the dead? They died again another day. Right? 
So all of those things in many ways are so temporary, but he does these things to point us to something more eternal and more significant. So I was trying to think through, like, application of this. Like, what is, what is the application of a message like this? And I had to be thinking about miracles. Um, so the question I thought of asking was this. Should we expect miracles today? Here's the reality. Some people say yes, and some people say no. Okay, And the people that say no, they say miracles. God doesn't use his people to perform miracles anymore today. Jesus is not walking on the face of the earth, and the Holy Spirit does not work through people to perform miracles. Those miraculous sign gifts have ceased. Some people will argue that, and they'll take Scripture, and they'll point out Scripture that seems to support their viewpoint, and they'll look at experience and say, look at all these people who have done all these fake signs and wonders. And so their conclusion is, this just doesn't happen anymore. And if it does, it's fake. Okay? And they'd give you some biblical support for some of that. Others would say, well, yes, they do. Why would the, I don't see any biblical support for the idea that these gifts wouldn't cease. And so today, God, the Holy Spirit, still works through believers to perform miracles and sign gifts and that kind of thing. And they could show you biblical support and they could show you genuine miracles that have taken place. When Mark and I, a couple summers ago, were in India, one of the churches that we gathered with, um, I asked the people there uh, through a translator for a show of hands, how many of you came to be introduced to Jesus through some sort of miracle. And more than half of the people raised their hand there. Okay, If I had asked you here in this place today, it would probably be very few, if any, of us that came to first be introduced to Jesus in that way. To make things even more complicated, I brought this book. I looked in my office. This is one of those books I bought in seminary, and you can tell by how new it looks. I don't think I ever really looked at it. It's called... Uh, our Miraculous Gifts for Today, Four Views. And so it's got, it's really helpful, these kind of books. Maybe you have one like this. It's got four people who are committed to the authority of Scripture, and there's four different views, and then they all respond to everybody else's view. So on one end, you have a guy who says, no, miraculous gifts are not for today. On the other end, you have a guy who's like, yes, they are, and seek them. Okay, and then there's guys in the middle, okay? Like we're kind of open but cautious, and there, there's different ways of looking at it. Those kind of books. And so we could, here's what I'm going to do, not today, here's what I'm not going to do today. I'm not going to tell you, like, well, here's, here's what I think the right answer is, and here's who's right, and here's who's wrong. Because this is not something we're willing to divide over. Some of you might, again, say yes, and some of you might say no. And we can function together as a church family with people that believe different things about the sign gifts and their use today. But I want to do this. I want to challenge each of you. First, I want to challenge those of you who believe that miraculous sign gifts are still operational today. And I want to challenge you with this. I want to challenge you with the reality that one thing that can happen as you try and seek miraculous, supernatural things from God all the time, that you might miss the ordinary, everyday miracles that God is performing. For example, you might miss as you seek to look for how is the Holy Spirit going to reveal Himself as glorious and you're looking all over for a healing here and, and something else over here. And you forget that the whole time you have the Word of God right here. And this is miraculous that God the Holy Spirit spoke through 
human beings, and we have the very Word of God available to us. Now, I haven't done this for a while, but there's this rap. Um, I'm not actually going to rap, right? But I'm going to quote from it, okay? Because uh, I, I love, I've, I've th- this is one called Symbols and Signs, and it's a warning, and it's a warning, I think, that we need to hear. A challenge if you are kind of attracted to always seeking after those kinds of things. And these are not guys that are saying those kind of things don't happen, but they're saying be careful that you don't miss the ordinary, everyday, miraculous stuff that comes from the Word of God. Here's what they say. So are you the kind that's completely consumed by symbols and signs? If you are, that's fine. But don't you find it interesting how most of the time your self-interpreting seems to coincide with what's deep inside your heart's desires? Seems rather convenient, doesn't it? I'm not saying that God can't do it, not saying that God won't do it. That might very well be the case. I'm simply making an observation of how much weight you place on it, what seems to be at stake and how much of your faith is actually banking on it, and how much of your mysticism is mixed with your religious philosophic system because sometimes what we believe to be true from our supernatural pursuits is actually a fluke, a series of events that used to distract you from the truth. But I'll give you a sign that's obvious. One of the most supernatural acts is that God, through his word, has actually revealed everything pertaining to life and godliness. There's this idea that an individual is somehow more spiritual if he sees these signs and symbols and takes what's normally invisible and makes it simple. But I say the mark of a mature man is the one who reads God's word and understands and allows that to govern his decisions and his prospective plans. And then another verse says this. I'm not going to do the whole one. One guy says, I like it when the wind shifts. They say it's the movement of the Spirit. Still small voice, you all hear it? Remember that time I saw that leaf fall? I was positive it was God's call. Wait for it, listen close, you all missed it? I sight Gideon, Samson, Paul, Elijah, saw the clouds split and know that God did it and does it still. Still his presence feels like chills, right? And if I'm honest, it doesn't happen often. Something must be wrong. It's boring when my life is more like the book of Ruth than Exodus. I've never seen the parting of an ocean or a cloud by day or a pillar by night, just the normal everyday working of life. Scratch your temple so deep it's simple, silly us. We ignore the plain and we prefer a riddle, dying to see a miracle while holding God's diary and looking for signs. So a warning to those who might be attracted to always expect the Holy Spirit's only going to work in stuff that seems really supernatural. You're going to hear this voice and he's going to tell you just what to do. That, that you're going to see this sign and it's going to be clear to you what comes next. That you're going to experience this healing and this miracle, maybe. But as you seek those things, don't forget to be looking for the ordinary, everyday miracle that God guides us and has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness here in His Word. So we need to remember that. But a challenge also then to those of you who want to be on the other side, you're like, yeah, I've seen so. I've been a part of a church, and people were faking stuff all the time. They said it was the Holy Spirit causing them to do this, or the Holy Spirit did that. I think it's all just, I, I think everybody's just making all that stuff up. I would challenge you to be careful that you don't too quickly write off what it is that God can do. Isn't it the case that God still desires that Jesus would be glorified and that people would come to believe in him? And could not God use a miracle to cause that to take place? Certainly he could. Ephesians 3, we ended the last worship service. I sent you out. I always send you out with words from Scripture. 
Last week, I sent you out with these words. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. He can do more than we expect. And so I would challenge you, if you think, oh, signs and wonders don't happen, don't close your eyes off to the fact that God can do whatever God wants to do, and he might very well choose to do those things. Okay? So that's application one. Should we expect miracles today? Uh, Application number two is this. We'll end with this. I'd have you ask yourself a question. Do you want Jesus, or do you just want what he can do for you? Do you want Jesus, or do you just want what he can do for you? Miracles or signs happen so that Jesus would be glorified and so that people would believe in him. But sometimes we get stuff mixed around, and we want Jesus to come and act. We pray, even pray fervently and repeatedly and over and over again that Jesus would come and act, that God would come and do something in us, maybe even work a miracle, bring about healing, Bring about financial provision, whatever it might be. Okay to pray for those things. We ought to pray for those things. But we also ought to keep in mind and ask ourselves the question, am I just asking this because I just want my life to be more comfortable? Or am I asking this because my desire is the same as God's desire? That I want to see Jesus glorified and I want to see more people believe in Him. It's a good question to ask ourselves because One thing that's clear as we've gone through the first chapter of John is that Jesus isn't just some miracle worker who is there to give you what you want, like some kind of genie, right? That that this is what I want, and and I know Jesus is the way to get it, and so I'm going to go to Jesus, and if I get what I want, then praise Jesus, God is good, and if not, I'm not going to say God is good because I'm not sure I believe that. I only really believe that if God gives me what I want. We need to be careful. That we don't start wanting what it is that Jesus can do for us more than it is that we want Jesus. Jesus is more than just a miracle worker. Jesus is the glorious Son of God. And this book was written, and miracles are done, that He might be glorified and that people might believe in Him. Right? I mean, just a quick illustration of that. Like, if you're married, and you say, well, I, I love my wife because... She does some laundry uh, for me, and she makes really good food, and she listens to me really well when I need someone to vent to, and that's it. That seems like she's kind of falling a little bit short. Like, that, that's fine that, that you're appreciative of that, but wouldn't it be better to love her just for who she is? That, that these, these things that she does reveals who she is, and that's what I love. We don't just love that she does stuff. We don't just love Jesus because he can work miracles. He can make us better when we're sick. He can make us richer when we're poor, whatever it might be. That's not why we love Jesus. We desire Jesus because of who he is. And those miracles that he works are signs that point us to the reality of who he is. Jesus' miracles are signs that point us to a greater reality, and that is his glory. My hope is that as we walk through the Gospel of John, that we would see what it is that Jesus does, and that as we see that, we would see glimpses of His glory, that we would delight in Him, that we would find joy in Him, that we would love Him, and that we would proclaim His greatness to others. So let's pray. God, I, I...
I just confess that a lot of times when I pray, I'm just praying because I want stuff to be better for me right now because it would be more comfortable. But God, I pray that you would more and more give me a heart that desires Jesus, that you would help me to see that the work that Jesus does day in and day out, work that looks miraculous and work that looks less miraculous, help me to see that that work is being done not only for my own benefit, but that I might see the glory of Jesus and that others might come to believe in him. God, I thank you for the opportunity we've had together today to to be amazed once again at who Jesus is and what Jesus can do. And as we sing a song now, of which the first words are, water he turned into wine, open the eyes of the blind, that, that the next line is, there's no one like you. That that would be what is resounding in our mind. That all of those things that you do would point us to the reality that there's no one like you. That we would shout out together, our God is greater, our God is stronger. God, you are higher than any other. So God, thank you for the opportunity to praise you for who you are. And thank you for how you reveal yourself to us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.